Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. I'm guessing that you like politics. If you didn't like it, you probably wouldn't be listening to this podcast. But are you actually interested in getting involved in politics? Or are you what my guest today, Aiton Hirsch, calls a political hobbyist, someone who enjoys the spectacle but wouldn't be seen dead out canvassing? Aiton is an associate professor at Tufts University in the US. He specialises in civic participation and voting rights. Welcome to The Bunker, Aiton. Thank you for having me. Last year, you published a book called Politics is for Power, about why sitting at home, watching TV and scrolling impotently through Twitter was not really getting involved in politics. And then there was a pandemic. And when we weren't homeschooling or cooking our own meals, we sat on the sofa doom scrolling. I guess that was a bit frustrating. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's not frustrating if you don't want anything uh, besides the status quo. If you're kind of a status quo person, then that's a great way to spend your time. You've described politics in America as increasingly a spectator sport. We don't treat politics as though lives are on the line. Tell us what that means in practice. Sure. Well, in practice, we've seen for decades, really, a decline in in-person civic participation. Many of your listeners might know of uh, Robert Putnam's book, Bowling Alone. We've seen this continual decline of civic engagement, religious engagement, community connections, and all that. But what we've seen at the same time is an increase in people who are interested in politics, they care about it, they spend their time on it. You have this cohort of, say, like college-educated, um, in the United States, particularly college-educated white voters, who will spend an hour or two every single day in news consumption. But they don't spend any of that time like trying to advance a goal that they have, whether it be through voting or canvassing or policy advocacy. They're mostly just treating it like a, a strange game. And they'd be embarrassed or, or resistant to that that term that they're treating it as a game because they care a lot. Like they're emotionally invested, they're intellectually invested. They're just not being strategic at all. So it's closer to a kind of a hobby or a sports fandom than goal-oriented political work. You teach at a university on the East Coast and you've seen firsthand how students will get involved in politics if there's the opportunity for performative politics, like getting a picture for Instagram of a rally or something or wearing a T-shirt, but not the hard work of trying to change people's minds. How did that affect the 2016 presidential result? The 2016 presidential result? Well, you know, again, you know, I think you had the situation where, uh, at least in the university setting, uh, the students were probably overwhelmingly in favour 
of Hillary Clinton over Donald Trump, but they weren't excited about Hillary Clinton. They, she wasn't a candidate that appealed to them in a in the way that like Obama was a celebrity. And so, you know, they would attend maybe a debate watch party, get some drinks and some chips and watch a debate. Maybe on the election night itself, they would also have a party and watch the results come in. You know, but many of them don't vote at all. Uh, you know, we have very low turnout rates among young people in this country. They certainly didn't get anyone else to vote. And so you have this kind of tragic thing where after the election, I still remember in 2016, you know, students were in tears. They were really upset. But they, and it's not just the students, like, you know, just like their parents and grandparents didn't lift a finger, you know, so they, on a survey, they would say, I'm really afraid of this candidate winning. I'm, I feel very afraid of that, but they don't act like, I mean, they didn't put any time into, into strategic engagement at all. You take aim at some of the things that we sometimes lazily assume are good in political life. And one of those that really intrigued me was small donor donations. That's basically supporters of a political party or, or an individual politician giving a small amount and all those small amounts add up. Tell us why that might not be always such a good thing. Sure. So let me paint for you first what a good version of that is. I mean, imagine you're a small dollar donor because you don't have a lot of money, but you want to give, say, I don't know, $50 to candidates. Here's a nice way to do that. You know, you and some of your friends decide we're going to give $50 and let's think hard about who we want to give it to, which candidates convey our values, where we can make the most difference. That, what I just described, is not what small dollar donations usually look like. Here's another picture. You're sitting on your couch and you watch some candidate who may be a politician scream at another politician or tell the other politician they're an idiot or, or make a viral video. That is the politician that makes you in that moment feel good. It, you get a feeling of like catharsis that that person just conveyed something that you feel. And so there you sitting on your couch and you use one of our very nifty, you know, uh, donation technologies to quickly one click donate 10 or $50 to someone. What happens when we donate that money in that way, non-strategically, just emotionally, is that A, the money's not being used strategically, but more than that, it's often going to politicians who are really good at making viral videos, but not necessarily good at doing politics, right? So I used an example in the book, one of the first instances like this, where uh, a politician, a Republican member of Congress screamed at President Obama. Obama was giving a speech at the Congress and the, the person screams, you lie, which from what I know of British politics, maybe that's more typical in the parliament, but we don't generally have politicians screaming, you lie at the president. And um, it was considered kind of a, a breach of decor. But then within 24 hours, that politician, Congressman Wilson, raised a couple million dollars. And you see this on both sides, that the politicians who tend to be more extreme and more provocative tend to raise small dollar donations because they are giving people what they want in that moment, which is some sense of emotional release. Interestingly, it's actually banned in the UK Parliament, telling people that they're liars. Uh, you, you get you get pulled up on it and you get suspended if you do it. Um, so people try and do it in uh, slightly con <laughs> convoluted <laughs> ways that implies that the person is lying without actually saying so. But, you know, one of the other things you talk about is that local politics, you know, there's this myth that local politics is much less important than national politics. But you argue that that isn't basically the case. 
That's right. I mean, for one thing, it, you know, just on the numbers, of course, we have in the United States local elections where you have 10% turnout. And it tends to be skews much older, much more among white people who are voting in these local elections. So if you can organize in those elections, you can have a huge amount of influence in a short amount of time because, frankly, not that many people are paying attention. But when we talk about issues, I mean, you know, in the last year, year and a half, at least here, we've had a huge amount of attention to the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's particularly been focused on police forces, which is, again, basically entirely a local thing. Schooling and school funding, whether schools with high rates of minorities have equitable treatment in terms of funding, all that state local. To to say, oh, you know, I I need to pay attention to the national stuff because that's, you know, all that important stuff is happening at the Supreme Court or in Congress. I find that to be like, that's very convenient, right? That you want to pay attention to something that you have no control over and really can't influence at all, like the Supreme Court retirements or something like that, as opposed to paying attention in a community where you could actually amass 10 or 20 votes and that would actually make a potentially a difference in, in, in things that you care about. Yeah, I mean, it's particularly salient in America in the last year or so, isn't it? Because the decision of whether to reopen schools has been basically a state and local one. It hasn't been in Britain, but it has been in America. So you can really make a difference in that. Totally. Yeah. I mean, all those school decisions. And, you know, what's interesting is that I, I think a lot of parents, I'm a parent of young kids, so this is my demographic. They see a problem for the first time, which is like they, they don't know, they, they, you know, they, they're not happy with their school district. And they've never been a part of it before. Like, they don't know how politics works. They don't know anyone on the school board. They don't know how these decisions are made. You get a lot of frustration and anger, in part because you just don't, like, you're entering this world of politics for the first time. Um, And I think that if people, if if we had more people kind of understood, you know, how does power flow in their community? Who is in charge and why? Then when you have a conflict, you know what to do. You know how to plug in. I think, you know, a lot of people felt upset, felt lonely, felt um, resentful about all of the various schooling decisions, particularly because, as you mentioned, yeah, they're all local. I mean, you could have someone a few blocks from you who's in a different municipality. Their kids are going to school and your kids aren't. And that's tough. Being relied on to do things is one of your yardsticks for how you can measure how useful the political activity you're involved in really is. You know, when people, if, if you stop doing it, would anyone notice? Would anyone care? Why is that so important? Yeah, but I, I, you know, I kind of use this as a nice diagnostic, right? Which is, how do I know if, if I'm doing something useful in politics? A lot of people, what they're doing in politics is like posting online. You know, they're sharing news, they're reading news, they're sharing commentary about the news. And so I ask the reader to ask themselves, like, if you stop that, like if you stop posting on Twitter, would anyone call you up and say like, hey, we miss your hot takes? You know, we need you. (laughs) And, you know, you're laughing because I think the answer is obvious. But if you are a part of a community organization that is working on a set of strategic goals, then if you don't show up, someone's going to call you and be like, hey, like you had a role to play here. You know, you were supposed to send this mail around. You were supposed to, uh, you know, make these phone calls, show up to this meeting. Like, we need you. And uh, so I think that's a good diagnostic. And when it comes to actually doing these things, this active volunteerism, if you like, you say that in America, Blacks and Latinos do it a lot more than white people do. And that's a really striking finding, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's strange. You know, we have higher rates of news consumption, 
And if you ask about how much time they spend, we have uh, more white people than blacks and Latinos saying they spend a lot of time on politics, say they care about politics. They know more factual answers to questions. You know, if you ask a people a bunch of questions like, which party controls the Congress? You'll have higher rates of knowledge about that stuff among white Americans. But if you look at how people are spending their time, white Americans are less likely to spend that political time in volunteerism, in anything that's kind of strategic. They're just more likely to spend it in consumption. Like they're in some social network where they get positive reinforcement for knowing interesting factoids. And I think what, you know, what we see in African-American Latino communities is more likely that uh, if you're participating, you are part of a community organization. Maybe you're part of a church network. Maybe you're part of uh, an immigration advocacy group, but you're, you're doing something real. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. One of your really radical suggestions is that political parties should actively help people who need it. I mean, they should offer something like, for example, emergency childcare. Tell us the thinking behind that, because that's a really radical thought about what political parties do and how they operate. Sure. Yeah. And I should say, because your, your, your listeners probably don't know, is that, you know, like the, the book is not mostly a, here's what we're all doing wrong and we're terrible. I mean, a lot of it is about <laughs> examples and <laughs> strategies for doing it differently and showcasing some examples of volunteer organizers who, who do things differently. But one thing that has changed over, say, a century in the United States is that the political parties have become kind of sanitized. They don't do hardly anything, really. The reason they don't do anything, I mean, there's a lot of reasons they don't do anything. One is that they've basically barred from doing certain things by statute, but they don't play an important part in people's lives, right? And so there is a suggestion that comes from a lot of examples, actually in more radical political parties, where you do concrete things for people and so that you build rapport with them. So, you know, I use an example of there's a group, the Democratic Socialists, which is kind of a lefty group. And there was examples of the last election that, that they were providing child care for people during school days off, like on vacation days, or they were providing um, a free auto clinic. Some of their volunteers would say, uh, hey, we're doing this thing. You, you need to fix your car. Like, we'll do it for free. Why are they doing that? They're doing that so people know them and learn who they are. And, and they're doing basically people a favor. And then when they come to your house and canvas, you know, before an election, they might say, hey, I, you remember me? I was the one that fixed your car. Or like, remember our group? Our group did all these great things for the kids in the community. And, you know, those things are actually consistent with the values that we have uh, that we want to bring to the state house or we want to bring to Congress. And there's examples of this on the far right. I mean, in the, early in the book, I use this example of the Ku Klux Klan which um, was running an opioid clinic a few years ago in North Carolina. And so, you know, they were saying to North Carolinians, hey, you have an addiction. It's not your fault. We can help you here at the White Knights of the KKK. And it's a, you know, a white supremacist organization, but they don't go around and say, we hate people. They say, come join us because we're doing nice things for the community. 
I want people to wonder if they're particularly in the center right or the center left or the center, they might have a really strong distaste for the thing that I just described. But they should also think about like, hey, am I doing anything like that? Am I building rapport with people in the community? Is any group that I support like out there in the trenches helping people? And if not, then like, good luck when you go door to door canvassing or you go on a you know, TV ad and say, we really care about you, right? It's not quite as strong of a signal as getting volunteers out there in the trenches. But that's because, isn't it? They kind of tend to think of politics as a more purer thing, if you like, where you're voting for national policies, where you've got ideas behind it, and that, you know, getting down in the, in the trenches and doing minor level stuff for people is almost creates a sense of obligation that's swimming against those decisions, which they want to be rational decisions, which they want to be based on, you know, a policy program. That's the problem, isn't it? I mean, I don't know if it is a problem. I think it's a naive view of politics, right? That A, that that's how people are going to make up their minds about who to vote for. You know, hey, voter, instead of voting for people who you know or friends of who you know, here, here's a 100-page document about our healthcare system and read this and then also read the other party's 100-page document and see which document you like better and then vote for that candidate. I mean, you know, no one basically does that. Um, and you know, they can't be expected to do that. But I, I do think that you're you're right that there's a view, particularly among more moderate uh, and kind of programmatic kind of voters and activists, that that's what should happen. So this kind of helping, though, is something that the labor movement in Britain has historically done a bit of, sometimes through the unions and sometimes through the cooperative movement. So there's an element of that in British politics, but I think it seems to be a much stronger element in US politics. I think somehow people are more comfortable with helping each other on the ground. Do you get that impression or is it hard to say because you're not expert on British politics? Well, I'm not an expert on British politics, but I'll tell you a couple things about the US, which is, for one thing, compared to most other countries, we've had a much stronger religious tradition that's stuck around for a while. And so a lot of this happens with churches. It's on the right, mostly not on the left, but this happens. So we have very strong grassroots organizations around the pro-life movement, right? That is the anti-abortion movement that's coming from church networks where people aren't necessarily coming to activism on anti-abortion politics because initially because they care so much about the issue or they care about exactly the policy. It's because that's what their friends are doing and their friends say, hey, like this conveys our religious values. You see that among gun clubs as well on the right. On the left, you did have that with labor for a while. I guess you have it to some extent, but the labor movement has really collapsed over time. And so I don't think you have the equivalent kind of grassroots orientation on the left right now in the U.S. politics as you have it on the right. Do we lie about how active we are in politics? Oh, yeah. People like lie through their teeth, particularly about voting. I mean, you know, in the U.S., you can confirm whether someone voted or not. That's not, not who they voted for, but you can look up in public record, did this person vote? And if you survey people, everyone says they voted. Then you check, and you're like, oh, no, it's actually only half the people. And that's only in a presidential election. You get down to the state and local level, and you have turnout rates, again, 10%, 20%. So people, particularly, again, like well-educated people, they know that political engagement is something they should do, and they don't do it. And so it's just like, you know, there's studies about this, like not just not just voting, you know, like donating blood. You know, if you ask someone, did you donate blood in the last year? Maybe the last time they donated blood was 25 years ago. But they said yes, because they they like to think of themselves as the kind of person who donates blood. That's basically what we have for, for politics as well. 
You deliberately got involved in local democratic politics in Massachusetts. How did that go? Tell us what you did and, and how you sort of got involved in the local community there. Yeah, so I wanted to walk the walk a bit. I mean, I learned a lot from the, the organizers and activists that I profiled in the book about what worked and what they did. And, and so I wanted to make sure I was doing that in my own community. The first thing I discovered really was that the local Democratic Party, I live in a basically an entirely Democratic town, I should say. Like it's probably like 90% Democratic. The local committee doesn't really do very much, particularly along the lines of what I've described, you know, service to others. They don't do much actually in local politics at all. What they do is they recruit local people to work in national politics. They deliberately actually don't weigh in on the big issues about environment or racial equality or the, the economy, housing. They don't weigh in on any of those local issues because they don't want to essentially create conflict among the local Democrats. And so the first thing I tried to do is get involved. And honestly, it didn't work. And I talk, talk a bit about that in the book. It actually is consistent with a lot of the organizers I've profiled who had all sorts of false starts. But since the book, I've actually had a lot of successes working with a group uh, on housing locally. We have a big problem, a big housing crisis. Actually, most of the world has a big housing crisis. But in, in the U.S., that conflict, the crisis has to be resolved at the local level. And so we've done a lot of work and had a lot of successes in local politics by getting out the vote for local candidates. I mean, a candidate who represents a thousand people, that kind of local. And we've made actually very serious changes on housing and also on policing in this community. But it took a little while to figure out the path. And what are you involved in right now? Is there a particular project you're working on? Well, I just finished uh, this big uh, commission I was on for the town for policing. So, you know, there are big questions about whether we want armed guards in our schools, which was the norm, and now we've done away with that. There was a question about we had a, a wing of the police force that essentially just patrolled the public housing area, which is an area that has a disproportionate number of African-Americans. And the question was, like, whether that program is necessary, whether it's helpful, whether it's harmful. And we ended up doing away with that program. And th but that, were, that was basically, you know, I was on a, a task force that made its recommendations, but then was also involved in organizing to get new candidates to run for those local offices. An example on housing, really interesting. One way that people who don't want apartments or high density housing in their neighborhoods is to declare their neighborhood a um, historical district. I'm not sure if you have an equivalent to this in England, but, you know, you can have a, a neighborhood that has really not particularly special kind of housing, but people will say, oh, we you know, but, but, you know, this important person lived here uh, and the important person was important because they were like a good neighbor to people 50 years ago. And therefore, you know, no one can build in this neighborhood. Uh, and so, you know, <laughs> that is a, a point of conflict. And so we've organized to try to push back at, at those historic districts, which are not really historic districts, but they're more opportunities to prevent further housing development. Yeah, we definitely have that problem here. We call it NIMBYism, not in my backyard. At the moment, there's also a shortage of housing in the UK and the government has just reined back in and said, oh, actually, we're not going to force local authorities to build so many houses. So it's not quite clear what's going to happen now, but there's been a massive backlash against the idea that you ought to have more houses in nice places, basically. And I have to say one thing about this, which is that anyone who gets involved in politics, it's not like there's no conflict like there is on Twitter. You know, there's just a different kind of conflict. And you're in this long term relationship with people who are on the other, other side with you. You know, you like you work out an issue and you might really be opposed to something. And it's just so different than the social media version of this. Right. It's not you, you cannot just do what you do on Twitter 
and say, oh, the other side, they're a bunch of idiots and they, they're evil because, you know, what happens is you're working out these issues yourself and you, you don't want to talk to people like that because you're going to see them <laughs> the next week or whatever. And so it creates a really different setting of politics than people are used to. It is not novel to people who are actually in the trenches, but there's this thing that happens, I think, when, when folks who are the hobbyists, who are typically just involved in politics on social media, and they suddenly get involved, and they're like, I can't just go around and call people jerks, because that makes me a jerk. That is a great sentiment to end on. Aitan, thanks so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Politics is for Power is published by Scribner. I do recommend this book. It will shake up how you think of your own commitment to politics. And it's very much an antidote to the mood of despair on the left in Britain at the way national politics is going. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor, and thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Ros Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>